Sometimes, when you think about the word humane as a derivative of the word humanity, what crosses your mind? Mostly altruism, right? You know, stuff like concern for happiness of other human beings or other animals, even a superior quality of life for both the material and the spiritual. The word altruism also refers to an ethical doctrine suggesting that individuals are morally obliged to benefit others, contrasting from egoism, which is basically where people are morally obligated to serve themselves first. In short, it's being selfless and not selfish. Morality, however, is something else. It is the contrast of purpose, resolve, and actions between those that are thought to be a proper or right, and those that are improper and wrong. This species of ours has, you and me, has created such marvels as the Pyramid at Giza, the Angkor Wat Temple Complex, the Great Wall of China, rockets, medicine, art, music, and even fashion. Yes, humans do bewildering things. They, we, also engage in violence. Violence against each other, against animals and other natural artifacts in the universe. Amazingly, we also celebrate these violent achievements. Just during the Mongol expansions, we can guesstimate about 30 to 40 million deaths just due to the expansions. That's not including the plague that would have killed 200 million just from Black Death migrations. All estimates, of course, here does not include the non-death suffering. After all, how else could you create the largest ever continuous land empire in history without the deaths? The conquests of Timur could be up to 20 million dead. The Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula, that lasted over 700 years, by the way, could have cost up to 20 million lives. The Three Kingdoms Wars between 184 and 280 AD is assumed to have cost around 40 million lives. And remember, the population of the planet was a lot less back then. So those numbers are yet more staggering as a percentage of the global population. The Japanese invasions of Korea in the 1590s could have been up to a million deaths. The Taeson Rebellion in Southeast Asia that involved China too, could have cost about 2 million deaths. The Napoleonic Wars cost roughly around 7 million deaths. The Taiping Rebellion in the mid-1800s, it is estimated to have cost 70 million lives. The population of the planet, again, was so much less than today. Keep reminding yourself of that 16 million died in World War I. That doesn't include the Spanish flu. 9 million died in the Russian Civil War that happened right after World War I. 
the civil war in China between 1927 and 1945, 1949 even, had its estimated death toll around 12 million. The Vietnam War cost 4 million people. The war in Afghanistan, that has been ongoing since 1978, and we're in 2021, has seen close to 4 million deaths and counting. The civil war in Sudan during the late 1900s and early 2000s saw 2 million dead. And the kicker, World War II saw up to 85 million deaths. 85 million. 85 million in a war that lasted six years. Most of those deaths in that world war were of Japanese, German, Chinese and Soviet citizens. Again, none of the numbers that I just quoted include the wounded, either mentally or physically. None of the numbers I quote tell the stories of actual individual people and families who died. Mothers, children, elderly, you name it. The suffering, the pain, all inflicted in the name of human-on-human violence. All I quoted was stats, statistics. Isn't this also humanity, selflessness, humane and proper? Humans will try justifying it once the violence is over. But we keep doing the violence over and over again, repeatedly. No sooner had 85 million died around World War II, that some humans kicked off more wars, starting with one in Korea. As I speak in July 2021, wars are ongoing in Yemen, Afghanistan, and other places. What is it about war and human-on-human conflict and violence? There are entire books and anthems on this. Roman triumphs marking large conquests, Detailed military documentation outlining Caesar's conquest of Gauls. Jel Shaba is a prehistoric cemetery site in the Nile Valley. It's now submerged under Lake Nasser. It's on the northern border between Sudan and Egypt. Experts associated with the Qadan culture dated to around 12,000 to 15,000 years ago. It is thought to be the oldest known evidence of warfare or systematic intergroup violence of some form or another that we have. 61 individual skeletons were recovered at Jebel Sheba, as well as other numerous fragmented remains. Of the men, women and children buried there, at least 45% died of violent wounds. Pointed stones, projectiles were found in the bodies of 21 individuals, suggesting that these people had been attacked by spears or arrows. Cut marks were found on the bones of other individuals as well. Some damaged bones had healed, demonstrating a persistent pattern of conflict in the society. At the site of Naturuk in Tukana, that's further south in Kenya, numerous 10,000-year-old human remains were found with possible evidence of major traumatic injuries, including small blades made of volcanic rock embedded in the skeletons. That should have been lethal. Rock art 
depicting acts of violence between hunter-gatherers in northern Australia has been tentatively dated to about 10,000 years ago. Iberian cave art of the Mesolithic shows explicit scenes of battle between groups of archers. Excavation work undertaken in 2005 and 2006 has shown that Hamokur, now in Syria, was destroyed by warfare by around 3500 BC. It's possibly the earliest urban warfare attested so far in the archaeological records of the Near East. The Tolens Valley Battlefield is the oldest evidence of a large-scale battle in Europe. More than 4,000 warriors from Central Europe fought in a battle on the site in 13th century BC. Is it in our DNA? Is it part of human being? Don't we have to fight for resources, to defend and to attack? Isn't that animal instinct? Isn't all that's happening in warfare and violence is giving way to the human animal and the ability to wage mass violence to protect, attack and defend ourselves? Is it just us? We even have documents, strategies and entire podcasts, videos, television shows, etc. all dedicated to the art of war and violence. Oh yes, the art of war. This was a book written around the 5th century BC by Sun Tzu, who was a Chinese general, a military strategist, a writer, come philosopher, who lived in the Eastern Tzu period of ancient China. The Art of War is composed of 13 chapters. Each one is devoted to a different skill set or an art related to warfare and how it applies to military strategies and tactics. The book contained a detailed explanation and analysis from the Chinese military, from weapons and strategy to rank and discipline. Sun also stressed the importance of intelligence operatives and espionage to the war effort. This is an important book. After all, it turns war into a philosophy. The art of war was part of the syllabus for potential candidates for military service examinations across China and many other regions of Asia, it influenced what was to become the future thinking around warfare. You are more than welcome to go and read it yourself, but I'm about to give you a short explanation and that might save you from reading it. So, chapter one is about laying plans. It explores the five fundamental factors, the way, seasons, terrain, leadership, and management, and seven elements that determine the outcomes of military engagements. By thinking, assessing, and comparing these points, a commander can calculate his chances of victory. Habitual deviation from these calculations will ensure failure via improper action. The text stresses that war is a very grave matter for the state and must be commenced without due consideration. Sorry, must not be commenced without due consideration. Chapter 2 is about waging war. 
It explains how to understand the economy of warfare and how success requires winning decisive engagements quickly. This chapter advises that successful military campaigns require limiting the cost of competition and conflict. Chapter 3 is about the plan of attack. It defines the source of strength as unity, not size, and discusses the five factors that are needed to succeed in any war. In order of importance, these critical factors are attack, strategy, alliances, army, and cities. I repeat, attack, strategy, alliances, armies, and cities. Chapter 4 is about tactical dispositions. It explains the importance of defending existing positions until a commander can advance from those positions in safety. It teaches commanders the importance of recognizing strategic opportunities and teaches not to create opportunities for the enemy. Chapter 5 is use of energy. It explains the use of creativity and timing in building an army's momentum. Chapter 6, weak points and strong explains how an army's opportunities come from openings in the environment caused by the relative weakness of the enemy and how to respond to charges in the fluid battlefield over a given area. Chapter 7 is maneuvering an army. This explains the dangers of direct conflict and how to win those confrontations when they are forced upon the commander. Chapter 8 variation of tactics, focuses on the need for flexibility in an army's response. It explains how to respond to shifting circumstances successfully. Chapter 9, the army on the march, describes the different situations in which an army finds itself as it moves through new enemy territories and how to respond to these situations. Much of this chapter focuses on evaluating the intentions of others. Chapter 10 is classification of terrain. It looks at the three general areas of resistance, being distance, dangers, and barriers, and the six types of ground positions that arise from each of them. Each of these six field positions offers certain advantages and disadvantages. Chapter 11 the nine situations, describes the nine common situations or stages in a campaign from scattering to deadly and the specific focus that a commander will need in order to successfully navigate them. Chapter 11, Attack by Fire. This explains the general use of weapons and the specific use of the environment as a weapon. This chapter examines the five targets for attack, the five types of environmental attack and the appropriate responses to such attacks. And finally, chapter 13, the use of spies. This focuses on the importance of developing good information sources and specifies the five types of intelligence sources and how to best manage each of them. Now moving south from China to India. The Arya Sastra is an ancient Indian Sanskrit treatise on statecraft, economic policy, and military strategy written around the 2nd to 3rd century BC. 
Chinakya is the author of the text. It covers a lot more than just warfare and violence, so I'll just cut to the war bits. Books 7 and 10 are dedicated to war. It classifies war into three broad types. Open war, covert war, and silent war. It then dedicates chapters to defining each type of war, how to engage in these wars, and how to detect that one is a target of covert or silent types of wars. We all know what an open war is. I'm not going to define the whole book here because it is a lot of information. But I'm going to highlight a few things. Number one, the state must always be adequately fortified, its armed forces prepared and resourced to defend itself against acts of war. Secondly, avoid war because peace is more conducive to the creation of wealth, prosperity and security of the people of your country. Thirdly, all means to win a war are appropriate, including assassination of enemy leaders. Number four, sowing discord in its leadership, i.e. the enemy's leadership, is encouraged. Five, engagement of covert men and women in the pursuit of military objectives and as weapons of war, deployment of accepted superstitions and propaganda to bolster one's own troops and to demoralize the enemy's soldiers is good. Six, open hostilities, by deploying the kingdom's armed forces. And number seven, after success in a war by the victorious, just and noble state, i.e. yours, the text argues for humane treatment of conquered soldiers and subjects. The Arishastra dedicates many chapters on the need, methods and goals of secret service and how to build and use a network of spies to work for the state. The spies should be trained to adopt roles and guises, to use coded language to transmit information, and to be rewarded by their performance and results that they achieve. Think about it. What this guy was talking about all those years ago is something humans are still doing. The goals of the Secret Service, i.e. the spies, was to test the integrity of the government officials as well. You would spy on cartels and the population for conspiracies to monitor hostile kingdoms suspected of preparing for war or in war, and to check spying and propaganda wars by hostile states against you. It's not just about destabilizing enemy states to get rid of troublesome powerful people, but it's also about securing your own position at home. What you've just heard are two ancient cultures from where we derive a written warfare strategy. Needless to say, Chanakya and Sun Tzu weren't the last. Let me change tracks and take you through some different types of warfare. I've identified 11 different types and we're going to go through each one, one by one. The first one, is asymmetric warfare. This is a conflict between belligerents of drastically different levels of military capability or size. Think of the US versus Iraq. Then there's biological warfare, 
or germ warfare. This is the use of weaponized biological toxins or infectious agents such as bacteria, viruses, and fungi against the enemy. Think of the US using napalm, Agent Orange in Vietnam. Chemical warfare involves the use of weaponized chemicals in combat. Poison gas as a chemical weapon was principally used during World War I and resulted in over a million estimated casualties, including more than 100,000 being civilians. Cold War or Cold Warfare is an intense international rivalry without direct military conflict, but with a sustained threat of it, including high levels of military preparations, expenditures and development and may involve active conflicts through indirect means such as economic warfare, political warfare or covert operations such as espionage, cyber wars or proxy wars. The fifth one is conventional war. This is declared war between states in which nuclear biological chemical weapons are not used. This is the act this is an actual war. This is a traditional war, i.e. the Russia-Japanese War of 1905. Then there's something called cyber warfare. This involves the actions by a nation-state or international organization to attack and attempt to damage another nation's information system, such as a cyber war is currently ongoing between the US and Russia and between the US and China. And believe me, who who else is doing this? Who knows? An insurgency is a rebellion against authority when those taking part in the rebellion are not recognized as belligerents. Information warfare is the application of destructive force on a large scale against information assets and systems against the computers and networks that support the four political infrastructures of a country, i.e. a power grid, communications, financial and transportation. Nuclear warfare is the warfare in which nuclear weapons are the primary or major method of achieving victory. Total war is warfare by any means possible, disregarding the laws of war, placing no limits on any target, using weapons and tactics, resulting in significant civilian casualties or demanding a war effort requiring significant sacrifices by the friendly civilian population. World War II is a great example of total war. And finally, number 11 is unconventional warfare. This is the opposite of a conventional war. It is an attempt to achieve military victory through acquiescence and clandestine support for one side. Think terrorism. But violence and conflict exist even in highly peaceful societies. Conflict does not need force or violence. Conflict can be anything from a school ground fight to a workplace politics. Countless television soap operas cover non-violent conflict. Violence isn't just the domain of countries like the US, China or Russia. It's everywhere. Don't you have criminals in Iceland, Denmark and New Zealand? Isn't there violence maybe unreported against women and children in Costa Rica or Bhutan? Of course there is. Humans are designed to harbour violence. In fact, to violently attack, take and defend is part of our DNA. Hate. Hate is a very strong word. Hate 
is an emotional response, like feeling angry or resentful. Sigmund Freud defined hate as an ego state that wishes to destroy the source of its unhappiness, stressing that it was linked to the question of self-preservation. While the fictional Star Wars character Yoda said, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. War and violence, at least in my view, are physical or actual world manifestations of human emotions that are inbuilt to two different things. One, grow, and two, preserve. In other words, it's a human condition. In my personal case, if someone came to me with a knife or a gun, I would do something to protect myself if I could. Looking at my personal state of fitness, however, my fight would be over soon, and the attacker would get the best of me. A similar outcome would happen with a large wildlife animal such as a bear as well. However, the human, I am sure, will prove more deadly and sinister than any wildlife. Our ability to inflict violence stems from our need to survive. We would hunt animals for skin, bones and food. We did not care if the prey was a mother, a father, a child or whatever. It was meat. Meat sustains our tribe. We need to kill to sustain. Simple and obvious logic. It will never end. Not against animals or each other. There is ample violence and ample warfare to come. History of warfare is written every day with lots of future history yet to be written. Modern warfare is mass weaponized and mass industrialized violence. The morality of war has been the subject of debate for thousands of years. We humans have come to some form of internalized understanding called the just war theory. It argues that the belief in war, while terrible, is less so with the right conduct and is not always the worst option. Important responsibilities, undesirable outcomes or preventable attacks may justify war. The just war tradition can be traced far back as ancient Egypt. Egyptian ethics of war usually centered on three main ideas. These included the cosmological role of Egypt, the pharaoh as a divine office and executor of the will of the gods, and the superiority of the Egyptian state and population over all other states and peoples. The Indian Hindu epic Mahabharata offers the first written discussions of a just war, or dharma yud, or the righteous war. In it, one of the five ruling brothers of the Pandavas asks if the suffering caused by war can ever be justified. A long discussion then ensues between the siblings, establishing criteria like proportionality, i.e. chariots cannot attack cavalry, only other chariots, no attacking people in distress, etc. Just means, meaning no poisoned or barbed arrows, 
just cause, meaning no attacking out of rage, and fair treatment of captives and the wounded. The war in Mahabharat is preceded by context that develops the just cause for the war, including last minute's effort to reconcile differences in order to avoid the war. At the beginning of the war, there is a discussion of just conduct that is appropriate to the context of the war. These are central to what humans thought then and what they do now. Chinese philosophy produced a massive body of work on warfare, much of it during the Zhao dynasty, especially during the Warring States era. War was justified only as a last resort and only by the rightful sovereign. However, questioning the decision of the emperor concerning the necessity of a military action was not really permissible. I'll tell you what though, most modern warfare is still over ancient issues such as land, resources, God and ego. That said, the new dimension in warfare is violence and corporate interests and their interaction. Profits from war is the new mantra. Militarized liberalism and aggressive authoritarianism are the real concerns as of mid-2021 and into the future. I am reminded of the ISIS fighters who would butcher captives in that horrendous civil war in Syria and Iraq. That is brutal hand-to-hand violence. In nature, other than humans, what other being or creature plans and executes on that? However, this kind of crazy violence isn't the domain of the fringe extreme. As recently as the 1960s, chemical and biological weapons were used by the US in Vietnam. I have a few quotes on the topic of war that I want to share with you. One is by the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who said, War does not determine who is right, only who is left. The other is by Russian revolutionary Leo Tolsoy. The two most powerful warriors are patience and time. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus said, In peace, sons bury their fathers. In war, fathers bury their sons. But to bring us back to earth, here is one quote that is the hard truth by Italian author Niccolo Machiavelli. There is no avoiding war. It can only be postponed to the advantage of others. You have been listening to the Alternative History Podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe, share, comment on the podcast platform of choice. Thank you so very much.